Welcome to The Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer, the humble lycanthrope. And I'm Sarah Hartman. And this is... Murder Coaster. Right this way, right this way, ladies and gentlemen. Back into the mirror maze of the internet, where we left off last week. Step right up into those fun house halls where everything is a reflection of a reflection and nothing is authentic or real. But be aware, for today we bring you atrocities that will shake you to your core. Atrocities like none ever seen before. And seen they were, for they were beamed out to the world over satellites and cables, shown all over the planet, for they shattered innocence and broke brains wherever they were received. Yes, the main exhibit in the freak show today is as disgusting and shocking as it is terrifying and horrible. Be prepared and keep your arms inside the vehicle and those safety belts buckled. For this week, we're back with Luca Magnata, part two, The Internet Strikes Back. Last week, we delved deep into the postmodern mirror maze of the internet, how it allows us to build identities for ourselves and curate a public persona. We saw how Eric Newman, went from a sad, bullied kid to a camboy and stripper to an escort, an aspiring porn star and model. How he became someone else, like his hero Marilyn Monroe had done, and changed his name to Luca Rocco Magnata and used the internet to create other new identities and even build a fake fan base for himself. We saw his struggle to make it onto reality TV shows and how he faced rejection after rejection after rejection as all the while shock videos became the newest internet sensation and people challenged each other to watch videos like two girls, one cup and three guys, one hammer. Now we want to introduce you to another person who enjoyed being someone else on the internet only she didn't seek to deceive and shock. Instead, she used her online persona to solve mysteries and catch a criminal. Her name is Deanna Thompson. Deanna describes herself as the textbook definition of a computer nerd. She works as a data analyst for a big-name hotel and casino in Las Vegas. And there, she's responsible for the technical aspects of the games and slot machines. And I'm just going to spare you the postmodern ramifications of all this, as I'm sure after last week, it's getting a little boring. But after work, she liked to de-stress by, you guessed it, spending time on the internet. Deanna has an internet alter ego too, though not as many as Luca Rocco Magnata. She operates under the handle Body Movin'. Beastie Boys, my faves. Body moving. 
body moving, A1 sound and a sound so soothing. Okay. I knew you were going to sing at some point. It's it's back. <laughs> I guess uh, guess we can't keep that off the air. <laughs> back to the story. Um, as Deanna says, quote, I can be anyone I want online. Deanna finds this anonymity liberating. Deanna recalls that in 2010, after a bad breakup and a long day at work, she was looking especially forward to browsing Facebook and getting lost in some online drama. And it was then that she found a post about a video that had been the center of a lot of controversy. Morbidly curious, she clicked the link and found the YouTube video, One Boy, Two Kittens, posted by the profile, You Only Wish 500. Yana was horrified by what she saw and deeply upset. The video begins with the image of a wolf's face that is then revealed to be a blanket on a bed. The camera shakily panning up to reveal two adorable kittens curled up by a pillow. A hand comes into frame and gently strokes them as John Lennon's So This Is Christmas plays softly in the background. We then jump cut back to an image of the bed the camera's stable now. And there's a young man in the frame with a teal-colored hoodie on, the hood pulled up over his head, fringy bangs visible. He places the two kittens gently into a large plastic bag, then retrieves the camera for a close-up. One of the kittens curiously crawls halfway out and the young man prods it back in. Jump cut again to the bed, where here you can see the two kittens have been sealed into the bag. A vacuum hose is attached to the bag, and the vacuum turned on, sucking the air out. One of the kittens tries to escape by crawling to the corner and pawing at the plastic as the bag tightens around it. The tiny creature struggles letting out anguished, muffled cries as the camera looms in for a disturbing close-up. The kitten then goes silent and still, and the man prods it with his finger for a moment before the video abruptly ends. You Only Wish 500 had only the following to say for himself. All haters can suck my huge dick, uh, LOL. The profile showed no interactions, nothing but a like for a clip from the movie, Catch Me If You Can, obviously a message. Deanna, aka Body Movin', took this as a personal challenge to determine the animal abuser's identity. Thickened into tears, she wept as she scrolled through the comment section of the video, then coming across a link to a Facebook group dedicated to finding out who this culprit was. A group called Find the Kitten Vacuumer for Great Justice. Deanna signed up as a member and began to acclimate herself to the group, reading previous posts and looking at comments from other members. She found most of the Facebook group members were predominantly focused on the person in the video rather than on factors that could help identify who he was. 
She felt that in order to identify the perpetrator, she would need to first know where this had happened. Deanna also noticed one group member who appeared to be more logical and notes he was always sticking to the facts rather than his emotions. This group member was called John Green. That's also an internet alias that he had conceived to protect his privacy. He was a resident of Los Angeles. John Green and Deanna started focusing on the background of the video in an attempt to identify the location. She noted that wall outlets and doorknobs could point to a specific area of the world, as different countries have different fixtures, and that unique items, like the woof bedspread, could indicate an identity of the buyer if the item was rare enough. John Green and Deanna export the cat-killing video into individual images so that they could meticulously examine tens of thousands of video frames. And John creates a layout of the room based on observations he and Deanna made. Then, a second video is released. This second video was filmed in the same bedroom and the kittens lay on the bed dead as imagined by john lennon plays the kitten killer toys with the small fuzzy corpses posing them on the bed the clip is also accompanied by photos of the cats in a freezer imagine all the people Living for today. No, please don't do that. I liked that song. Didn't help myself. I know. I know. The clues start piling up. Cigarettes seen in the second video point to North America as a probable location due to the presence of that Surgeon General's warning. Deanna posts an image of the vacuum to a vacuum repair group asking for assistance identifying it. It turns out to be a Kenmore canister cleaner Esperadora model 7-21-26-08-2. And that's also a North American product. Good job. I don't know if I could have said that. That's that's a mouthful right there. Yeah, I've never said the full name of a vacuum cleaner with the model number and everything. Esperadora. What? Okay, well, the group also analyzed the background noise of the video. They heard laughing and talking, followed by a click, and then silence. At first, they asked themselves, is there someone else in the room? But one group member, who went by the pseudonym of Nicey Punk, was a resident of the Ukraine and recognized the soundtrack for what it was. It was thanks to her that the group was able to identify that the background noise was actually a Russian sitcom playing, perhaps in an attempt to purposely mislead investigators, Deanna stated. Which brings up another important question. Does this culprit know he is being scrutinized? That question was soon answered when an obvious sock puppet joins the group. Now, a sock puppet account is a fake profile containing a generic name and generic profile picture and no real personal identifying information. The account is usually created to post something and then deleted. 
So some of Luca's sock puppet accounts appear to still be up on Facebook. They're very unimaginative, but you can find them if you look in the right places. And we did. This profile, John Smith, really imaginative. Such an imaginative name. Well, John, yes. John Smith posts a link to the group page. The link John Smith posts is to a photo of the figure in the teal hoodie holding the dead cats. His face is blurred out, but this is an indication that he may want to be chased. And it's also a definite indicator that the perpetrator is aware of the amateur investigation and is capable of infiltrating the group. The group only becomes larger over time. The group explodes in size. When famous New York-based animal rights organization Rescue Inc. decides to lend their voice to the crusade as well. Described as an in-your-face approach to animal abuse and neglect run by, quote, former street guys, Rescue Inc. has over 100,000 followers on Twitter and Facebook. Joseph E. Panzarella of Rescue Inc. made virtual wanted posters to get social media attention and offered a reward of $5,000 for the kitten killer. The hunt was on. This influx of new group members was both a positive and a negative for John Green and Deanna, as while the attention meant more leads, the sheer number of people in the group complicated the integrity of any tips they received. John and Body Movin' no longer knew exactly who was joining their group, or if the new members could even be trusted. And out of nowhere, some group members received a message from another sock puppet account that said, the person you are looking for is named Luca Rocco Magnata. John and Deanna have said that their first thought was that this sounds like a fake porn star name. And they weren't far off. Right. <laughs> uh, seeing no other course of action, they Googled Luca Rocco Magnata, a search which yielded over 800,000 results. 800,000 results. It's mind boggling. Crap. Our boy has been busy. Oh, yes, he has. And uh, this Luca character. He appeared to be a model and an actor. He had splashed the internet with pictures of his jet-setting lifestyle. Photos depicting him in Bermuda, Sweden, Russia, Paris, Rome, Miami, just to name a few. There were hundreds of fan sites, which, of course, were all run by Luca Magnata himself, as well as gossip about him being the long-lost cousin of River Phoenix and rumors about him dating Madonna. I heard somebody else did that once. <laughs> Who could that they... be? <laughs> I guess our listeners can look that up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they found that uh, cover guy audition where Luca claimed, a lot of people tell me I'm really devastatingly good looking. They saw that the Toronto Sun interview had been done to address rumors that Luca was dating Carla Hamoka. The most hated woman in Canada. Remember her? 
How can you forget? Oh. John Green, after looking through many photos, came to believe that Luca was doctoring his photos. John noticed that the bodies and the faces, they didn't match. There was bad pixelation. And that a simple reverse image search could lead to the original undoctored images. Busted. Oops. <laughs> Deanna noted that while the comments on the fan sites are from different user accounts, the same verbiage and writing style could be seen in all of it. Could Luca have actually created 50 separate profiles to comment on his fan sites? You know he could. We got a busy, busy boy on our hands here. And after taking in all this new information, Deanna and John Green made a private secret Facebook group called Luca Intel. And this time, they only included select members of their previous Facebook group. They only included people this time that they felt they could trust. Members from the original group who were, quote, reliable, smart, pragmatic. They noted that while they now had a suspect, they did not know where he was located. Remember, the interviews where he was in Toronto were from at least three years prior. Indiana, ever the computer nerd, knew that when digital pictures are taken, sometimes something called EXIF data is stored in the image. This data includes where the photo was taken and a GPS location of the photo. She and John downloaded thousands of Lucas photos and loaded them into a website that would extract any EXIF data. A photo of Lucas sitting in a chair lounge in a fancy department store yielded EXIF data that identified the GPS location for the Toronto Shopping Center and a date, October 25th, 2010. This was uh, significant because the Kitten Killer video was released only a month later in November 2010. From another photo of Luca on the balcony of an apartment, John Green was able to identify a Petro-Canada gas station in the background. Luca had mentioned an address in one of his online video interviews where he requested again that the paparazzi stop stalking him. That address was 304 Mill Street. Stop stalking me. Don't stalk me. I demand my privacy. <laughs> Do not go to 304 Mill Street on weekday afternoons between noon and five o'clock. Don't you go there. It's the uh, second driveway, you know, the one with the yellow mailboxes. Do not go there. Here's the exact location so you can avoid it extra hard. <laughs> Leave me alone. Here's my address. Don't show up here. John Green looked it up on Google Earth, and he was able to confirm that this apartment complex was, in fact, located across from said service station. It's in a suburb of Toronto. So John reaches out to the Toronto Police Department. The police went to the apartment, knocked on the door. But the person who answered stated that Luca no longer lived there. He'd gone to Russia. And so the police leave. A dead end. And months go by. The vigilante Facebook group losing ferocity and motivation as interest in the investigation begins to dwindle. But then 
there's a new YouTube video called Bath Time LOL, uploaded by Jasmine the Cat 666. In this video, there's a cat taped to a broom handle held above a tub full of water. The cat looks desperately into the camera, a panicked look on its face as it is lowered into the depths and held under the water until it drowns. Ugh. Yeah, and the same day, another video is posted. It's titled Python Christmas. This one from the name Leslie Ann Downey. This video opens with the same bed as the other videos. A young man wearing a Santa hat carries a kitten in another Santa hat and places it on the bed. Then, from under the pillow, a yellow Burmese python slithers out. The kitten stares at the snake a moment before the python pounces, wrapping the kitten in its coils before swallowing it whole, head first. In the background, Christmas music plays. The little drummer boy. Deanna recognizes the name used to upload that video. Leslie Ann Downey, a victim of Ian Brady and Mira Hindley, the Moore murderers. Oh, man. It's, it's all just so fucked up. You know, he used that name. Ugh. He was just a 10-year-old little girl who was raped and murdered by Ian and Myra. And they tape recorded it. It's uh, one of the last things she says in this recording is, I want mummy. Oh, it's it's one of the most heart wrenching and disturbing things you can ever hear. And guess what? The little drummer boy was playing in the background of that tape recording. Jeez. Yeah. So Luca is obviously obsessed with serial killers and also obsessed with serial killers that record their crimes. And it's also this weird whole blonde bombshell thing. Like Carla Homolka, a blonde, who recorded herself torturing young teens. And Myra Hindley, a bleach blonde, who recorded herself torturing and killing children. The whole thing is just so disturbing on so many levels. Also, talk about a mirror maze. Yeah. And with the new videos, there is renewed press and social media attention. A journalist from British publication, The Sun, Alex West, gets a message from a sock puppet account. You know, maybe a member of the Vigilante Facebook group, maybe Luca himself. Who knows? This anonymous tip states that Luca Magnata is in London, England, and is staying at the Fusilier Inn. Fusilier Inn. Good question. Yeah. Uh, Alex goes to try to meet Luca. And he secretly records the encounter. Alex does indeed find Luca there. When asked by Alex, Luca states that he was in London because of the harassment, getting death threats. He denies being the guy on the cat killer video. In his own defense, he says, people are really good at Photoshop these days, aren't they? <laughs> Ironic, yeah. Some people are good at it, but uh, guess what, Luca? You're not. <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh, after he departs, Alex returns home to an email from a John Kilbride. 
the name of another victim of the Moore's murderers. The email reads, I will send you a copy of the new video I'm going to be making. You see, killing is different than smoking. With smoking, you can actually quit. Once you kill and taste blood, it's impossible to stop. The urge is too strong not to continue. You know the fun part of all this? is watching millions of people get angry and frustrated because they can't catch me. That's why I love this. I love the risk factor. It's also fun watching people gathering all the evidence, then not being able to name or catch me. You see, I always win. I always hold the trump card. And I will continue to make more movies. London is wonderful. Because all the people are so stupid. It's easy. So I have to disappear for a while until people quit bothering me. But next time you heard it from me, it will be in a movie I'm producing that will have some humans, not just pussies. And meanwhile, back in Facebook land... Another Sock Puppet account posts a comment to the original Vigilante group page. The comment only says, quote, Body Movin' 99. But an inquisitive group member clicks on the profile and sees the likes from this account. This account had only one like. The account had liked a walkthrough home movie of the casino where Body worked. Creepy time. Very creepy. And Deanna, who is body moving, she realized this was her workplace and she was terrified. This is an indication that the cat killer had knowledge of her identity. Fearing for her boss's safety too, she told him what she'd been doing online in her spare time. She felt mortified due to the high profile nature of her tech job. Basically showing up to her boss and being like, hey, yeah, this is what I do in my spare time. I hunt for a cat killer online with my internet friends. (laughs) Uh, And then, well, all right, I guess a warning is in order here, ladies and gentlemen. For here we enter the main exhibit of the freak show today. And it is not pretty. So get out your barf bags. Buckle up. John Green gets a message in the middle of the night from Facebook. I think this is the guy you've been looking for, another group member wrote. The message contained a link to a video on bestgore.com. Bestgore is a shock site like rotten.com, which we went pretty deep into in the last episode. They show real-life gore, accidents, autopsy shots, fucked up shit that ends up on the internet. And we'll get pretty deep into them a bit later. Body slash Deanna wakes up in Las Vegas to the messages as well. The video is entitled One Lunatic, One Ice Pick. She hits play and is horrified beyond belief by what she sees. And fellow freaks, this is your last chance to turn back because I'm going to describe the video. Ooh, let's hear okay. it. Here we go. So it begins. A naked man is tied to a bed, cloth covering his eyes and mouth. 
listlessly stirring as if drugged. Beside him is a man dressed in black, a sweatshirt hood pulled up over his head. A Casablanca movie poster hangs on the wall, and the song True Faith by New Order plays in the background. The figure in black straddles the naked man who's tied to the bed, and he struggles slightly. Then that black adorned figure stabs him in the gut with an ice pick, again and again in a vicious assault. The torso is shown, riddled with stab wounds, before the camera cuts to a close-up of the victim's face. His throat is slashed, the wound is bloody and gaping. At this point, the hooded figure begins to slice the victim with a large kitchen knife. Jump cut to the man's decapitated head in a bathtub. The figure in black is playing around with it, pulling it by the hair. The body is then dismembered, the killer playing with the limbs, taking the severed hand and rubbing his crotch with it before flipping the headless, limbless, naked corpse over onto his belly and humping it. Whether he's actually penetrating the body is hard to ascertain. Um, the killer's wearing pants. But then using a knife and fork, he cuts pieces of the flesh off his victim's buttocks and brings in a black and white puppy, which also eats some of the meat. He then rams the neck of a bottle up the corpse's anus before taking off his pants and using the severed hand to masturbate with. And at this point, the face of the killer becomes clear. And it's the face of Luca Magnata. Yeah. Now, to really solidify how horrible and terrible all this is, remember at the conclusion of last week's episode, my fellow freaks and dear listeners, the internet, it was ablaze with all these challenge videos. We talked about the challenge to watch two girls, one cup, and two maniacs, one hammer, and tub girl. But there were countless others. Some of them were really positive, like the ice bucket challenge, which uh, was done to support awareness of the disease ALS and encourage donations. Well, Luca, he marketed this video as a challenge video. And the name alone suggests a challenge. And countless people ended up watching it and recording their reactions. I'll tell you, I've listened to some of this challenge footage. And some of these people, they were just children as young as nine years old. Their reactions vary from screaming, crying, to vomiting and gagging uncontrollably. It's, it's simply horrifying to hear. Many of these viewers, they gave themselves PTSD without even knowing it, simply just by watching this incredibly horrific video. Yeah, and um, just a word of warning, fellow freaks. Beware the mirror maze of the internet. These reflections of reflections can bite, and you're trapped in there. Facebook group sets up a Google alert, waiting to hear news of a body being discovered. What else can they do? 
Days go by. They receive no alerts. Maybe the video wasn't made in Toronto. They wonder. The Facebook group eventually does identify that Luca is in Montreal, not Toronto. They find a video compilation he made three months prior to the murder. Much like his other photo collage videos, this is just a slideshow of images of himself. However, they notice a picture they had never seen before. A picture of Luca sitting on stone steps, trees behind him with foliage just barely sprouting, perhaps taken in the beginning of spring. The season shows the image is recent and relevant, and the pedestrian lights in the background are also unique. Black, square, not yellow like the ones in Toronto. Deanna and John identify the street layout as Montreal. Together but separate. Remember, she's in Las Vegas and he's in L.A. They open Google Maps to digitally walk the streets of Montreal and find the lights and the stone steps that are in the picture. Yep, John finds the stairs. They're on the McGill University campus in downtown Montreal. This is a different jurisdiction and completely different police department than they had previously worked with. So are two heroic internet nerds. They have to go to another police department and explain this utterly insane situation. They tell the Montreal police there's been a murder. They need to investigate, highlighting all the evidence. But the police ignore them. Deanna thought about that black and white puppy and how Craigslist is a place to get free dogs. She searched Montreal Craigslist post and found one dated four days before the murder. It read, man seeking a dog. The man states that his family also owned a pet shop. Tiana recognizes this phrase as something that Vladimir Romanov, another of Luca's sock puppet accounts, had written in another post one year prior. Deanna, very familiar with Luca's writing style, notices patterns unique to his comments. She knows, for example, that Luca usually types something with a space followed by a comma and another space. Also, he often repeats phrases such as so hot and sexy guy. So Deanna hypothesizes that Luca may have found his human victim on Craigslist and she continues to search. She finds a personal ad from May 24th seeking a sexy guy to make a movie. The murder would occur May 25th. In Montreal, garbage is collected on Fridays. But when garbage collectors came to 5720 DeCary Street, there was a large amount of old furniture that day in May 2012. So they weren't able to collect all the garbage and they left behind a lot. Among those items left behind was a gray suitcase. When the building's superintendent noticed it sitting there, his first thought was, why would someone throw away such a nice piece of luggage? But then he noticed it was emitting a foul smell, was swarmed with flies, and there were maggots crawling out of it. He opened it and was horrified to see what appeared to be a human torso. He immediately calls the police. 
the police begin to search through the garbage and find several garbage bags with evidence in them. They find blood-stained clothing, a Casablanca poster, latex gloves, a camera, cell phone, and laptop, a screwdriver that had been filed down to look like an ice pick, a vinyl tablecloth coated in blood, an electric saw, a dead black and white puppy, Mm. as well as a human leg, two Mm. arms with the hands cut off and a left leg without a foot. They also find a receipt from a pharmacy from one Luca Rocco Magnata of 5720 Kari Street, apartment 208. This guy, he's, he's a criminal mastermind. Clearly. And the police actually thought he was a victim. Um, the officers were sent not to search the apartment, but to make a wellness check after they found that. All the fucking work these internet sleuths have done. They've identified the killer. They've tracked him down. They told the police where he was. And they just completely ignore him. And the cops think that he's the victims. Ugh. It's so frustrating. Uh-huh. Okay, so in the apartment, they find a blood-soaked mattress. It's wrapped in plastic and duct tape. A luminal test finds traces of blood everywhere. And there was a message written on the wall. If you don't like the reflection, don't look in the mirror. I don't care. Also at the scene, and this one here just boggles the mind, there was a camera and memory cards containing the original material used in the video that was going around the internet. And on it, there were many scenes that didn't make the final cut, including one of Luca on the bed having sex with the right arm. His face very, very clear. Jeez. Mm. I don't even know how you have sex with an arm. I I don't even want to think about it. Don't want to see it. (laughs) Later that day, too, the um, Conservative Party headquarters in Ottawa received a package containing a human foot. And shortly afterwards, a human hand was intercepted in a package intended for the Liberal Party of Canada. Well, you know, at least he was targeting both the Liberals and the Conservatives. He's he's fair and balanced politically, I guess. That's something. (laughs) Later, schools in the Vancouver area would receive packages containing a right hand and a right foot. The hand, which was mailed to False Creek School, had a poem in it that read, Roses are red, violets are blue. They're going to need dental records to identify you. Bitch. The bitch really doesn't rhyme with anything. No. Bad poetry. Yeah. <laughs> so so uncreative. <laughs> uh, okay. The final address was for L. Valentini, St. Catharines, Ontario. And you know who this is? None other than the sister of the infamous Carla Homolka. He'd used her name for the return address. Oh. Yeah, later at the trial, she has she they make her come to the trial and speak. Oh, I don't I didn't know that. Yeah, yep. We may have to come back to that in our Carla episode. Oh yeah. 
security footage from May 25th at 2.47 a.m. in 2010 showed Luca wearing the shirt of the victim, making repeated trips with at least 20 bags of trash. Nearly every time he stops by the lobby mirror, he checks his hair. I guess he did like the reflection. I guess so. You know, he was devastatingly handsome. At least he told people that. Don't forget modest. Super modest. So (laughs) modest. Anyway, as the authorities scroll back, they also find security footage of two young men in their late 20s entering the building. One is Luca and one is an Asian man. But there is no footage of this Asian man ever leaving. Police look through missing persons reports and find a Chinese man by the name of Yun Lin is missing. Lin's ex-boyfriend first noticed Yun was missing and called his best friend. Both his best friend and his ex-boyfriend note that Yun would definitely have told his friends and family if he was going to be out of town. Yun Lin was born December 31st, 1978 in Wuhan, China, an industrial city where being gay is something you kept to yourself. He eventually moved to Beijing, but his dream, it was always to one day live in Canada, a place that he considered liberal and accepting, tolerant and safe. And Yun realized his dream, moving to Canada to study computer science at Concordia University in Montreal and working at a convenience store to get by in the meantime. His best friend requested permission from Yunlin's building manager to check on him in his apartment. Once inside, he did not find Yun, but saw that his cat had not been fed for days, which was very uncharacteristic and concerning. Yun's friend called the police, and the missing persons report was filed. Rumors of the video had already made it to Yun's best friend, and his best friend looked up the video on Best Gore. And uh, yikes. And he couldn't watch the whole video. So he scrolled to the end and he saw that the head in the tub was Yun Lin. Ugh, I, I can't imagine. I just I can't imagine seeing a friend or a loved one in a video like that. It's so disturbing. It it really just tears at the soul. Truly awful. Right. And while the infamous murder video was originally published on a website called Kevin.666 under the name Time to Shake Things Up a Bit, as well as a few other places, it was under the name One Lunatic, One Ice Pick on the shock website Best Gore that got it the most notoriety. Mark Merrick is the owner of bestgore.com. He started his site in 2008, and it became one of the largest shock sites of all time. Merrick says in an interview with the true crime writer, Brian Whitney, the content published on Best Score is nothing more and nothing less than a reflection of what really goes on in the world. Pretending that it doesn't go on by not reporting on it will not mean that all that foulness does not take place. I've always been a strong proponent of freedom of the internet and the free flow of content and ideas on the information superhighway. The other part of the right to freedom of expression 
is the right to access information. And so I established BestScore. So the information that is routinely censored by the mainstream press is available to those who are interested. It's not forced on anyone. So all those who prefer to live with rose-colored shades on can just ignore the site. But those who do want to see reality ought to have access to content that exposes it. After all, real life is uncensored. Concerning the infamous Luca Magnata snuff video, he told CTV, I saw a video that showed potentially a horrific crime, and I had two options. Either ignore and risk that another person suffers the same fate, or do something about it and see if we can get that person off the street. And on July 16th, 2013, Edmonton police arrested Merrick and charged him with corrupting morals for posting the infamous video on his site. It's a very rare charge based on Section 163 of the Canadian Criminal Code and carries a maximum sentence of two years imprisonment. Section 163 also outlaws crime comics and publishing methods of curing venereal disease. <laughs> how, do, how do laws like this, are there still in the book? So crime comics are, are illegal in Canada. And so is uh, <laughs> posting methods of curing venereal disease. I don't know, whatever. Huh. I would have loved to have been in the room when they came up with that and see like the logic or lack thereof of why you would create that. Well, I mean, well, the whole comic book thing, that's we'll get we can get into that on some other future episode. It's it's a big deal. This it's the reason the original horror comics were all canceled. It's the reason Mad Magazine became Mad Magazine because it was originally uh Tales from the Crypt, the classic horror comic, and they made it illegal. Yes, we should do an episode where we kind of tie that in, if if not feature it. All right. Put it on the list. Will do. In 2016, uh, he pleads guilty to the charges, stating that he, unlike Luca, took full responsibility for the harm caused and acknowledged that it was he himself who endorsed the publication of that video. The judges sentenced Merrick to three months of house arrest and no jail time. And, you know, you might think that the Montreal Police Department would take Deanna seriously now. But after she sees that a torso has been found and that body parts are being mailed around Canada, she again contacts them, offering all the information she and her Internet sleuths have gathered. But again, the authorities do not respond at all. Deanna hops on her body-moving profile and rants about that on Twitter. But other than that, what exactly can she do? She feels guilty, wondering, did I not do enough? Did I do too much? Did I egg Luca on by giving him the attention that he wanted so he pushed himself to bigger atrocities? When the head of Montreal Police Department finally says Luca's name on TV, the vigilant Facebook group felt both pissed off and validated. Police contacted the secret Facebook group finally and requested to join. The group was willing to help them, but felt that if authorities would have listened sooner, Lynn's death may have been prevented. Luca flees the country, buying a plane ticket to Paris, 
under his own name on the website lastminute.com. Such a genius. Criminal mastermind right there. Super smart. And John Green remembered seeing the Casablanca movie poster in Luca's video and thought of the quote, we'll always have Paris. Security footage shows Luca in a black wig and a Mickey Mouse t-shirt. Good. (laughs) Montreal authorities contact police in France to brief them on the murder, provide suspect descriptions and photos and case details. The taxi driver who picked up Luca in Paris is identified, and he tells the police that he took Luca to the Novotel Hotel, where he's registered under the name Kirk Trammell. They investigate, but he's gone, leaving behind some porno magazines and a barf bag. Barf bag, great. It's uh, worth noting that Luca had once posted a blog called How to Completely Disappear and Never Be Found. It's a step-by-step guide to leaving your old life behind and evading the law. But just like everything else Luca tried his sad hand at, his life as an outlaw was an abysmal failure. He was on the run for just over a week before he was caught. In early June, Deanna logs onto Facebook and finds an influx of messages and notifications. Everyone she knows is sending her CCTV footage of Luca, originally posted by John Green, in an internet cafe in Berlin. The owner of the cafe had read the newspapers. Specifically, he'd read the report about Luca and was floored by the brutality of the case. Suddenly, one morning at work, he finds Luca is standing right in front of him at the register. Luca asked to use the internet in the cafe, which had 36 booths where customers could use a computer and drink their coffee. The cafe owner gave Luca booth 25 and pretending to be hovering around under the pretense of cleaning up the shop, he looks over Luca's shoulder to see Luca browsing the Interpol site. He's sitting there and he's looking at his own mugshot. Of course he is. And now the cafe owner knows it's him. And as luck would have it, the owner sees the Berlin police driving by. He runs out into the street, flags them down, and cops pile into the cafe and arrest Luca. He's taken out in handcuffs, all caught on security footage that Deanna sees online. So postmodern. Or, I guess, as the kids today would say, that's meta. Yeah. Well... <clears throat> no airline wanted to pick Luca up. I, I can't blame him. <laughs> pick this scumbag up. So uh, they didn't want the bad press. And a military airline picked him up and said, Canadian military transport. And they took him back to Montreal, hands and feet shackled. He claims that officers, abo- officers aboard argued over who got the privilege of leading him out. Some say it looks as though Luca is grinning when he's escorted off that plane. Like he's reveling in his celebrity status and loving that attention. Still, others say that he looks confused and scared. Hmm. Mirror images. Luca's defense team try to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. But the jury don't buy it. And on April 12th, 
2013, Magnata was indicted of first-degree murder, offering indignities to a human body, distributing obscene materials using the postal system, and criminal harassment. In 2018, Luca's mother, Anna Yurkin, released a book entitled My Son, the Killer, the untold story of Luca Magnata and One Lunatic, One Ice Pick. Of course, this was controversial, as she uses it to defend not only herself, but her son, blaming almost everything on a mystery man named Manny, who she claimed abused her son. I read this book. I found it absolutely fascinating. And just to set the record straight, the real author of this book is award-winning journalist and true crime author, Brian Whitney. And Brian Whitney is a fabulous writer, by the way. But uh, I think a lot of people are just confused about this book. It's, it's not your average true crime book that offers up facts in a cohesive order. Instead, it's made up of three points of view that alternate back and forth, chapter by chapter. The first point of view is Whitney himself, just basically trying to make sense of this case. The other is Luca's mother, Anna, telling her side of the story. And the third point of view is Luca himself who granted numerous in-depth interviews with Whitney. So the, the book, and I think this is one of the reasons that people are so turned off by it, it's filled with blatant contradictions and what feel like false accounts and outright lies, at least to me. And it appears Whitney is just kind of shifting through this, sometimes very tongue-in-cheek, exposing them as he ends a chapter saying one thing and then begins the next chapter saying the opposite. I just want to say, I love when we can get a book review from you for this. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and Luca will claim that he never tried to be famous or even that he never spent much time on the internet. He was just a male model who was obsessed over and trolled. He had nothing to do with all those sock puppets. Whitney will follow a chapter like this with direct quotes from a psychiatrist saying Luca admitted to falsifying his identity online to boost his self-image and from an intense need to be recognized, loved, and not feel alone or abandoned. Luca says the Carla Homoko rumor was started by unstable internet stalkers, and he had nothing to do with it. Then, Whitney quotes a psychiatric report where Luca admits starting the rumors himself, saying, yes, it was stupid. There is also a constant back and forth over whether Luca has schizophrenia or not. But to that effect, Luca himself, and this is after his conviction, has been quoted as saying, I have no mental illness whatsoever. I had to go with it, even though I didn't want to. But my lawyers pressured me into it. I told the doctors I had no mental illness, even now in prison. I take no medications, but the lawyers said our only chance was to go with the NCR defense. And Anna unwittingly shows herself to be a terrible, terrible mother in so many ways. At one point in 2011, he calls her from a hospital in Miami, Florida, saying he's been raped. He's confused and beat up, disorientated, but he needs someone to vouch for him so that he can be released from the hospital. And Anna 
she refuses. She refuses to vouch for her son. Whoa. What the fuck? <laughs> Finally, his father vouches for him. And when he returns to Canada, he is irate and furious with his mother for not vouching for him. He actually told her he'd never speak to her again. You know, she's just constantly ratting this kid out to the cops. Remember back in the last episode, she reported him for driving his father's car without a license. Later, telling the police about the cat videos, which concerned relatives had shown her, and which Luca, at that point, was denying being in. And she tries to set him up in a sting operation, telling the cops where she thinks he is, and saying, quote, All I asked was that the police not tell Luca that it was me who gave them all this information. Jeez, Mom. I mean, if your kid's making cat videos, it's pretty fucked up. But he's denying it to her. He's like saying, it's not me, Mom. I swear it's not me. And she's, meanwhile, secretly going to the cops and like, I'm going to set him up. I'm going to have him meet me here. Except she goes back and forth on this now because now she says he didn't do anything, right? Yeah, now it's Manny. Now now it's all Manny. She could she just, oh. they're both two peas in a pod. Right. And normally friends, relatives, and especially parents will attend the trial of their loved ones, sitting behind them to show support. It not only helps the defendant, but it can make them appear more sympathetic to a judge or a jury. A famous example is uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's father who sat directly behind him every single day of his trial. Though Luca's attorney pleaded for her to come to court, his mother refused. He didn't show up one single day, not once. But then, apparently, when she realizes that she can start making some money from this, that he's some kind of weird celebrity, it's then that she starts visiting him. And, you know, even here, she's a selfish callous and cruel so like canadian prisons seem really lax and luca's able to arrange to have a trailer to visit his mother in for four days there's a kitchen bedrooms a laundry room so anna and her new beau show up and she leaves on the second day she doesn't even stay the whole time she complains that she can't stay there because she can't smoke her cigarettes Hey man, it's just it's just so cold, you know. All the trouble he goes through getting this trailer, it's got to be a huge special privilege. Mm. And that brings us to Manny. In the book, both Luca and his mother claim this character Manny is the real culprit. He killed the kittens. He forced Luca to kill Young Lin, and it was Manny who uploaded the videos onto the internet. Luca claims. That while working as an escort, Manny was one of his clients, but he quickly became more than a client, becoming his keeper. And that this client's name was Emmanuel Manny Lopez. He told his mom that Manny was a stalker who found him no matter where he moved. Luca described him as well-connected and controlling, saying he had ties to the mob to the government. He could have had Luca beat up or killed any time if Luca didn't follow his every order. Luca once sought the aid of an attorney named Romeo Salta, to whom Luca said, you look like Michael Douglas. 
Remember, Michael Douglas was the star of the film Basic Instinct, which will become important soon enough. This is also weird. So in 2010, Luca came into Salta's office and stated he was accused of killing a cat, but that he was forced to do it by a person named Manny. He said he couldn't report Manny to the cops because Manny was always around. Luca sent an email to Salta entitled List of Abuse from Manny, where he states he was strangled, stabbed with a pencil, forced to eat animal parts and worms, as well as, get ready for this one, he was forced to have sex with a puppy and cats. Also in the email was a photo of Luca with a black eye, bruises on his nose and lips, and a ligature mark on his throat. These are from the aftermath of the Miami incident that we mentioned earlier, which Luca blamed on this Manny character. The Miami Beach Police Department called one week later to tell Salta that Luca was in fact drugged, raped, and left on the beach in Miami from New York. It's all so bizarre, and Salta does not know what to make of this incident to this day. <laughs> Neither do I. The author, well, he writes the chapters from Luca's perspective about Manny as very dreamlike and surreal. It's as if maybe Luca's hallucinating this character or making him up in his mind, even a product of Luca's schizophrenia. The author points out that no one, including investigating authorities, has ever seen any evidence that Manny even exists. At one point, the author asks if anyone knew who this Manny was and where he was. And it, the way it was written, it almost seemed like a joke to me. Like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This is obviously bullshit. Like, do you have, have you seen Manny? <laughs> like, no one's ever seen this guy. Can anyone and, find this man? Right. And in the end, in my opinion, it appears the whole thing is just part of Luca's weird and elaborate inner mind and fantasies. He was always playing with names, changing his own, like his hero, Marilyn Monroe, spreading rumors he was dating Barbie from the Ken and Barbie killers, when he was in fact dating a self-proclaimed, this is what she calls herself, she-male, named Barbie Swallows, using the names of children killed by Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, even mimicking the killings by playing the little drummer boy. And while Manny... Manny is the name of the abusive ex-lover in Basic Instinct, a movie he was obsessed with. Luca used the alias Kay Trammell. Sharon Stone plays seductive and elusive murderer Catherine Trammell in Basic Instinct. Catherine Trammell famously uses an ice pick as her weapon. And in one scene, she is straddling her lover, who is tied to a bed, just as Luca had straddled Yun Lin. Above the bed is a glass-stained window, and in Luca's snuff film, there's a poster for Casablanca in the same spot. That email to Alex from The Sun, where he compares killing to smoking, remember? <laughs> it's a direct ripoff from the film, where Sharon Stone states, killing isn't like smoking. You can quit. And it looks like Luca even chooses a lawyer 
who looks like Michael Douglas. Mirror images of mirror images of fake things. This case is the definition of postmodernism. The entire murder, it's kind of, it's like an homage to the film Basic Instinct. Sharon Stone, a beautiful Hollywood blonde bombshell like Marilyn Monroe, who had been Luca's obsession, so much so that he even stated he could feel Marilyn Monroe's soul inside of him, stating, when I dressed up as her, sometimes I feel like she is making me more beautiful. I have a connection with her. I love her so much. And perhaps Luca's mother is in on the joke as well. She says to this day that she keeps a bag of very special items to remember Luca by. And one of those very special items is an old keychain for the movie Basic Instinct. She notes that her son was a film enthusiast who loved all types of films. He became an actor at last in his own film which he promoted for the world to see. And as a note, that film did get him what he wanted, his own Wikipedia page. Yeah, that's true. Does have a Wikipedia page now, and they don't you know, try to take it down. There are times the charm. <laughs> um, and there's no question that Luca was motivated by notoriety. And when he couldn't become famous of his own merits, he decided to become infamous instead. In the book, Look at Me, The Fame Motive from Childhood to Death, psychologist Orville Brim writes about the human desire to be recognized as unique. He states that early rejection tends to predate some people's overwhelming desire to appear notable. And that's definitely true of Luca, whose mother stated that he was bullied and ostracized by peers and abused by his stepdad, which again, we covered in episode one. Psychologist Brim says, celebrity is the ultimate high school in-group. The internet makes celebrity status more accessible than ever before. Every human being has their own personal platform and audience with social media. And the role of social media and its relationship to modern homicide is an area of interest to the field of psychology at present. I first heard of the term wound culture in the second published edition of Sheila Eisenberg's classic true crime book, Women Who Love Men Who Kill. But wound culture theory itself is something that's currently being studied. Is there a relationship between the rising levels of global homicide and the growing importance of social media? Does social media fuel homicide? Does social media impact the crime rate? Does it help solve murders? These are relevant questions that have yet to be completely answered. And we can't help but think about these questions in this case, especially. With Luca, here is a murder that takes place and is solved almost entirely online with the aid of modern technology. The book, Women Who Love Men Who Kill, originally published in 1991, presented over 35 case studies with intent to examine the motivations of women who fall in love with convicted killers. We could probably do a whole episode on this book and suggest checking it out for yourself if you haven't already. In 2021, author Sheila Eisenberg 
republished her original findings to include additional research encompassing the impact of new technologies and social media. As we previously stated, Eisenberg mentions wound culture. This is a term which attempts to describe the growing fascination with true crime and the new social avenues on the internet that allow people to connect over morbid shared interests. In Women Who Love Men Who Kill, Eisenberg uses wound culture as a lens through which to discuss cases of women who use social media not only to contact convicted killers, but also to create and maintain social groups in support of them. She mentions two subtypes of these fan groups online. Some groups try to lend credibility to a killer's claims of innocence, and others, often secret fan groups, tend to support and glorify the killer, regardless of guilt. And by 2012, Luca Magnata had become the fanatical obsession of teenage girls and young women on the internet. Here's a quote from a Luca Magnata fan. Quote, I spend nearly half the day reading, thinking, or writing about him, she well, says. So do I. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess we just did. Episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this fan uses the Facebook handle Luca Magnata Supporter, but identified herself as an 18-year-old student from the UK named Soph when interviewed by ABC News. She says, I worry for him. So I always have to keep myself updated about him. I started having dreams about him. He is a beautiful man, but it isn't that. I'm attracted with who is inside of him. I'll support him no matter what. There's nobody inside of him. That's, oh, that's he the ate point someone. of the whole thing. Oh, that's a joke I can't make. Oh, <laughs> oh. But it's like, you know, what Brett Easton Ellis said in American Psycho. It's just it's just a mask it, it behind it is nothing but it is nice to know that i'm not the only one who occasionally dreams about murderers i have nightmares about them does that count yeah that's a dream (laughs) i was dreaming about carla mocha i don't even remember what the hell i was dreaming about her but i to be honest when i I felt disgusted when i woke up i was like not that the dream was a nightmare i just she's in my fucking head like that but what are you gonna do we do this for you fellow freaks suffering (laughs) every day (laughs) And there was a Facebook fan page called Support Magnata, which had over 1,400 subscribers before it was removed for inappropriate content. And when it was removed, at least four other Facebook pages sprung up to take its place. Some even discussed raising funds for Luca's defense. These groups included Free Luca Magnata and Support Luca Rocco Magnata. In 2012, There were also several blogs where participants could upload fan images. Often, they were resharing many of the pics that Luca had posted before the crimes, like his Photoshop stuff, um, as well as fan fiction and personal fantasies. Images of images of images of images of images. Lexa, a 30-year-old married mother of two, runs the blog called Luca Magnata Obsession, (laughs) where she curates... (laughs) Uh, I guess he got what he wanted. Uh, you know, yeah, that's a fan fuck. site someone else made. Yeah. Uh, she says uh, her fascination with him began following the news stories of his arrest. 
Over time, she said her feelings had shifted from intrigued observer of true crime to, quote, bordering on a crush. She blogs about her romantic dreams involving Magnata, and when interviewed by ABC News, reported that she only wanted to use her first name to keep the blog a secret from her husband. Oh, man. Yeah, it's, it's not great. <laughs> oh. uh, she does not believe that Luca Magnata is innocent, but rather acknowledges that she believes him to be a killer and a cannibal. She's quoted as saying, He's a bad boy. I've always been attracted to bad boys. Good boys are boring. Like my husband. So icky. <laughs> I don't think she said that last part. Just strongly implied. <laughs> Meanwhile, in 2017, Luca himself got married. Yes. Sad news for all his internet fangirls. So sad. In 2017, Luca married another Canadian murderer. His name was Anthony Jolin. The two are inmates at different prisons. Jolin stabbed a fellow inmate to death while doing time for a separate offense, which was robbery with a firearm. And as such, his six-year sentence was then upgraded to life in prison. I just noticed... This guy's name is just like the fucking murder victims. Oh, my God. I am just noticing this right now. Joe Lynn. Oh, my God. Fucking hell, man. This guy and his names. uh, Has anyone ever? I I mean, I literally just noticed that this second. Assuming we're pronouncing it correctly. Either way. I mean, just the the lettering, the J and the L-I-N. It's it's uncanny, man. That's crazy. Well, fuck. Speaking of technology and social media, the couple met in 2015 on the website Canadian Inmates Connect. I, I bet you he saw the fucking name on the website and was immediately like, boom. Dude. That's Where not Lucas... what his mom said. His mom said they knew each other for years before. Oh, yeah. His mom says that's another thing in the book because, like, the book will be like, Telling you about this and then have a quote from the mother going, well, they actually knew each other in real life and didn't meet there. Yeah, whatever. Well, we're going to go with the official story. There is no it's all a mirror maze. (laughs) It's literally is. It's a fucking mirror maze. And and there is no reality because reality is just what you perceive it to be. Okay, Lucas stated he was seeking a white male in excellent shape between the ages of 28 and 38. After corresponding for two years long distance, the two tied the knot on June 6, 2017, at a highly secure event that took place at Pontcartier Penitentiary. Magnata's mother was a witness. She expressed her pride and love for her son. She said, It doesn't matter to me where the wedding was taking place. For to me, it was a milestone in my son's life, a day that mothers hope for. We always hope our children will find love and happiness. And mine did. (laughs) Wow. Good for you. Yeah. iHeartRadio reported that the uh, Correctional Services of Canada said that the married couple would not be allowed to use the private family visitation area 
That was the one where uh mentioned earlier Luke and his mom had met. And they would not be allowed any type of cohabitation. They remain in separate prison institutions to this day. And as for our heroic internet sleuths who worked so hard to solve a crime the police had no interest in until body parts were literally being mailed to the government, Deanna still wonders, were we complicit in Luca's crimes? She wonders if the attention generated by social media fed into his narcissism. Did we feed the monster or did we create it? She asks. She mentions the quote Luca left behind. If you don't like the reflection, don't look in the mirror. Saying, if we didn't like the reflection of Luca, maybe we should have turned away. Yeah, guess what? Looking away from a reflection, that doesn't erase the reflection. It's still there. Just because you can't see it doesn't make it go away. Which every true crime fan can tell you. Sticking your head in the sand doesn't stop these crimes. They're real. They happen. These people walk among us. John Green has said similarly. He says, are we pawns being used to help him tell his stories? And he states that you can't have a movie without an audience after all. And without social media, Lucal would have potentially remained a failed actor with a few to no movie credits and only a few cameos in gay porn on his resume. Oh, John Green. Come on, man. It was the lack of an audience that caused the crime. He was desperately trying to get an audience. It's not because he had an audience. It's 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 pretty much like the exact opposite of what you're saying. If he had had an audience, a real fan base, then he might have gone on just being some douchebag model. And the last scene of that Netflix documentary about the case, uh, it's called Don't Fuck With Cats, if we haven't mentioned that. Um, it has Body Movin, a.k.a. Deanna, looking right into the camera. She points at us and she says, and you, you've been watching a whole documentary about Luca Magnata. Are you complicit? Perhaps it's time we turned off the machine. To which I say, fuck you. Yeah, just Fuck you. You obsess and obsess. You sit online for how many countless hours? Then you turn around, point the finger, and blame true crime fans? Asking if we're complicit? Yeah, that's right, fellow freaks. I got your back. I won't let anyone talk shit about you. Yo, body moving. You want to do something? Why don't you go volunteer to help feed hungry children? Why don't you start an organization that seeks to help troubled teens in need? Because where were you when Luca was just a little boy named Eric Newman being held down and beaten, called queer slur words by his Nazi father? When he was tormented and assaulted in school or had to steal food on the street to survive? Maybe, just maybe, if he had gotten some help as a child, he wouldn't have turned out to be the monster he is. Or maybe he was just born with it, a defect in the mind that made him callous and cold to other humans with a sadistic streak and a strong narcissistic tendencies. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit of both. 
but it's not because me and my fellow freaks have a morbid curiosity. So yeah, I'll say it again. Fuck you, double fucks. Sitting on a Netflix murder documentary, shaming people. It's the height of hypocrisy. You make me sick, and you've negated all the good work you've done. Okay, whoa, all right. Uh, you feel strongly about that, Maddie? Feeling some type of way here? Yeah, yes, I do. <laughs> and they can suck a fuck, man, at least as far <laughs> as that true crime shaming goes. I mean, seriously, you're going to shame true crime fans? And what does Netflix do after shaming us for watching their own Luca Magnata documentary? They release a three-hour Jeffrey Dahmer documentary and a 10-hour Jeffrey Dahmer drama, which becomes their most watched show. Okay. Oh. But the truth <laughs> is, I love both those. Don't get we me know. wrong. <laughs> Shit, I watched them both twice. Both of them. That's like 26 hours of Dahmer. And no, I don't feel guilty. Netflix, I mean, they make great documentaries. I just got to say. <laughs> I, I, what I really want to do is I want to let my fellow true crime freaks know I got their back. I got you guys. Oh, okay. Well, you made it nice. But I do want to say, I don't think that Body Movin' and John Green negated all their hard work, but I do think they should have given themselves some credit minus the guilt trip because they did an awesome thing here. But anyway... You Obsessing heard... over a true crime to the point of like insanity. They solved a crime. Then... <laughs> well, they helped. They helped. And then they shamed us for it. Yeah. Well, I wish they hadn't done that. I think I think they should have credited themselves. But it's I thought they were very cool to the very last second of the damn movie, and I was like, obviously, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, you heard it here, fellow freaks. Matthew Brockmeyer has got your back, and with that. We're going to bring this crazy look at the internet, postmodernism, snuff films, and Luca Magnata to an end. Thank you so much for listening, dear listeners. We'll be back next week with more tales of murder and mayhem here on Murder Coaster. And hey, we want to hear from you. Got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? Or do you just want to say hi? Send us an email at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com that's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com catch you next time